This is the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. This is where it all counts. This is why we're here. This is why each one of us is here. And now, here's your host. Welcome back to another edition of the Saturday to Sunday Football Podcast. I am Paul Pertichese, and thank you for joining me as always. Really excited to have with me this evening, Jeff Abercrombie. Jeff, welcome back. A couple episodes that I've missed having you across the board for me. How are you doing today? Good. It's uh, glad I could get this one on my calendar. I know with uh, with guests, we got to get the East Coast, West Coast time zones lined up. But uh, pretty excited here to talk to Sig. So Sig, you Sig Bloom, you're in the studio. Um, how's it going? It's great. You know, this is the time that you can feel the calm before the storm. The obsession with football is going to be back. Uh, the fire hose is going to be on from training camps. There's a lot of things that we've wrapped our mind around where there's a range of possibilities for change, but now we're going to start getting our first clues of where it's going to fall, the plots. And look, uh, training camp always changes things. If your brain isn't malleable, if you're not flexible, if you're not ready to accept that, hey, whatever I've been thinking all offseason, maybe I need to rip that up and rethink that, then uh, I think that you're downplaying the possibility that things are always different than they seem. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think this is the time right now. We're, we're into mid-July. Training camps are set to open. Everybody's in the Scott Fishbowl, either concluded or currently <laughs> drafting. Like, we're all getting ready. And there's still, I think, things to unpack from the draft. And as we head towards training sure. camp, and here at Saturday Sunday, we, we don't turn the page probably to August to that next wave of prospects. So we wanted to have you on post-draft like we always do, talk about some big ticket items and talk about some rookies. Why don't we start the quarterback position? I think, you know, the big thing was when I joined you guys for your live show on, on round one of the NFL draft, I don't think we expected just one quarterback. And if mm-hmm. so, I think the People maybe thought with the Steelers, they were connected a little bit to Malik Willis. They had a guy like Trubisky in the building. You know, what do you kind of make sense of it being Kenny Pickett, not being Malik Willis, you know, and where does that kind of stand? Do you expect him to be under center sooner rather than later? Do you think this could be something that lingers a little bit more towards the middle of the year or, Mm -hmm. you know, really remote possibility the entire year? And we have Trubisky, you know, leading that team. Yeah, there's a, this is going to be a real interesting storyline to watch unfold because it seems like all at once this year, and it is like we've talked about so many times, the 2013 draft, right? That was the E.J. Manuel draft. Uh, we're back revisiting that draft where skepticism is the note of the day among the NFL teams with respect to the quarterback class. And just like in 2013, we saw some quarterbacks drop rounds longer than we expected. Uh was it that they don't feel comfortable with quarterbacks that they haven't seen them do NFL type things? Was it that they aren't just as convinced by traits as they have been in the past? Uh, you know, was it just watching some of these things play out with Sam Darnold and Baker Mayfield and how it's not even just your job that is at stake if you miss on a first round quarterback, but you really set your franchise back. It's almost better if you had never made the pick at all. And these quarterbacks all have a chance to prove the league wrong, starting with Kenny Pickett. Well, maybe not prove the league wrong, but usually the first quarterback goes before the 20th pick. And I think the situation for this year, at least based on the temperature from beat writers is he's nowhere close to starting. 
not right now. He was playing with the third team. They're not preparing him to start. There's not a feeling around the building that he's in a true quarterback competition with Mitchell Trubisky. And then the other side of that question, Paul, is just how well does Trubisky play? How many close wins with defense and uh, Najee Harris running game at 240 whatever pounds? Can they win 13 to 10? So as long as they are still in the playoff hunt, which is tougher than ever in the AFC, then I don't think we're going to see Pickett. But Pickett was the quote-unquote most pro-ready quarterback, whatever that means. And I think that when and if, and as Steelers, neurotic Steelers fan, I'm going to say when, they're out of the playoff race, let's say around Thanksgiving, when they're four and seven or something like that, then that's, I think, when we're going to see Pickett. But I think that that we're used to first round quarterbacks start. They start earlier than we expect them to. But I think this year's first round quarterback is different. This year's quarterback class is different. And we'll, we'll see that play out by how long it takes Pickett to get on the field. Now, Sig, do you think this year would Pickett fall in the 20, the other guys fall into round three? Do you think it was almost an over market correction than mm-hmm. some of the things we've seen in the past? And like, I, I keep coming back to it that Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes game was going to, is going to have lasting impact on the league for a long time. And like, we saw guys like Kellen Mond and Kyle Trask go earlier last year than guys like Malik Willis and, and, you know, Desmond Raider and Matt Corral this year. And we've seen guys like Daniel Jones with his warts go at pick six. And we've seen Drew Locke go, I think it was in like the 40 range. So we guys with certain traits and talents Mm -hmm. still usually get pushed up the board, but this year, it, they didn't, and they almost fell further than we've ever, right, probably right. ever seen. Do you think it's part of that Mahomes, Josh Allen, where teams are starting to say, if we don't have a guy that can do that in that type of setting, then why are we investing in them early and, and giving them the keys to the kingdom? I love to look for league-wide trends, Paul, and I definitely like to psychoanalyze the league based on all the stuff that we see happen. The tougher part of discerning that in this situation is you're really not talking about the whole league, right? You're really talking about, what, a quarter of the teams or less and what their psychology is about drafting quarterbacks. You're talking about Tennessee. You're talking about Carolina and so on, Steelers. Uh, and maybe it's just that those teams didn't want to make that kind of decision. Where We also saw Tracy Jordan Love go in the first round to a Green Bay team that was looking ahead, trying to be real clever and get out way ahead of something, and they basically shanked a first-round pick. So I, I don't know whether we can extrapolate a league-wide trend out of this, but I definitely think that there is this idea, I think, around the league, and we're going to see what happens with Mac Jones, for instance, that a player does need to have the traits to play outside of structure. He does need to be able to create situations where he can win even when the defense has diagnosed the play correctly and everyone's playing the play the way they're supposed to so but that was why i was surprised that a player like malik willis fell as far as he did to go all the way back around the original point paul that it seemed a little bit shocking uh, you know someone like eric galco who runs the shrine game he's been around this for a long time he was on my show the day or day before the draft saying he thought the lions would be reasonable if they took him at number two uh, and he wasn't doing a smokescreen for Willis's agent or anything like that. Willis and his whole family, the league invited Willis and Coral. So somebody, whoever it is, is in charge of that, right? Because we know traditionally, if you're invited to the draft, it means somebody, it's like when you get invited to the combine, they think you're going to get drafted. When you get invited to the draft, they think you're going to go in the first round. So, so there is a gap to make up here. And what's great, Paul and Jeff, is that all we're going to talk about is not the whys. It's just how these players perform. In the end, the ball don't lie. Performance, eye in the sky, etc. And uh, it's just one of the many cliffhangers we're looking forward to watch unfold over years. 
So Sig, I have I have two follow-up questions. Um, you know, first, you were talking about this sort of pendulum swing on an overreaction where, you know, we're talking about Corral, uh, Willis going, you know, well into the third round when guys like Trask and Mond and and Davis Mills all went kind of, you know, that that ter- two, three kind of gap bridge. And and we've seen someone like Davis Mills come in, perform in structure and earn himself another year as a starter, right? So, you know, one big question there is, you know, what is, you know, Houston's quarterback market doing, right? Like, are they, you know, do you think Davis Mills has a legitimate shot to be a 2023 starter as well? Mm-hmm. And with the way that they're structuring that team. And then, you know, maybe you could tie this into how much of sort of the the off-season quarterback movement that, that we just uh, was... We've seen an unprecedented number like fall for quarterbacks in the draft, right. but an unprecedented amount of movement this offseason with vets, you know, with Russell Wilson, with, you know, uh, you know, with Deshaun Watson, with Baker now getting moved and Jimmy Garoppolo available. So how does that play into this as well? The Texans, I think, are taking a long term view here, right? They don't even have the person who's going to coach the true rebuild. They're just ha- they just have caretakers. I mean, Lovey Smith. I love Lovey Smith, but I mean, he's a caretaker. Uh, really, this was a period where if they were sober about it, they knew they had to spend a couple of years, not just a year, undoing the mess that they inherited from the Bill O'Brien era, and including Deshaun Watson, which actually ties right into your question about veteran quarterback movement. And I think in general, we see the player empowerment era starting to creep into the NFL. If you're a if you're an important enough player, you can dictate your terms. You can dictate your way out of town. Uh, maybe not to pick your place where you're going to end up, but at the very least, say uh, I'm not going to play for this team anymore. Get it done. So while we're seeing on one hand the new CBA makes holdouts basically pointless, a player like Kyler Murray, for instance, guys, he's going to get his deal done, and he didn't even need a holdout to do it because he's that important. He's that important to the team. So I think that we're seeing that with, on one side of the veteran quarterback question, someone like Russell Wilson, who probably has been maybe not asking out, but certainly open to being out. And I think that we can tie that back to your first party question, Jeff. Maybe the Texans, if they're paying attention, or do what Denver did and get all the pieces. And what Seattle honestly was doing before they got Russell Wilson, get the pieces in place for a competitive team, install your team ethos and culture, and then when the right moment comes, get your quarterback. But don't force it. Don't be like Carolina. Don't, don't be trying to force something every single offseason. This will be the, the move that fixes it. This will be the move that fixes it. But at the same time, I look at the Texans guys, and I see something more like the Eric Mangini Browns. Remember the Eric Mangini Browns? Where you say, well, the first thing is if we get all players that have this kind of character and this kind of approach to working at football and this kind of approach, and they are better than we expected them to be last year, but are you going to get the players that really swing a game? And, you know, we'll see. We'll see with Derek Stingley Jr. I think that uh, we saw, however, on the, the move when they traded down, you know, maybe when they could have had uh, uh, players that they could have had Kyle Hamilton, right? They could have had uh, uh, Jordan Davis. And I was a little bit disappointed with that. So I'm not entirely sure that Nick Casario. I mean, guys, let me take this a whole other direction, right, as I ramble on about this. How many years is it before we stop seeing teams trying to recreate the Patriots, right? How, when can we finally put a stake through the heart of this? 
And maybe if the Judge Patricia offense is as laughable as it sounds on its face, and if Nick Casario just keeps the Texans at a six-win plateau with Jack Easterby maybe or maybe not having more influence on this team than he should, maybe that's it. Maybe that's finally the end uh, because I think the Texans are very much tied to that Patriots way, even though now doesn't seem as good as it did when they committed to it. Yeah, you made some really good points there, Sagan. I think you're right. I think my guess is it may last until Belichick finally calls it quits. Like I feel like <laughs> I feel like as long as he keeps the Patriots decent with, when he turns things around, I feel like a lot of the, the flaws of his ability to get wide receivers there. I feel like they kind of just they get talked about, but then they kind of just get put to the back burner because of you know his legacy and 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 his success that he's had there. And you know again. Is it Belichick? Is it Brady? It's definitely both. I understand, you know, it's not just one, but at the same time, how many times do people keep just, you know, poaching players or, I mean, poaching front office people from the Patriots and expecting that way to work? We've never really seen it. We'll see Josh McDaniels now in the second time if, if there's more success there, you know, and, and like you said, as, as someone who, who painfully had to watch the Joe Judge error, the thought of Mac Jones progressing this year under Joe Judge's watchful eye and Matt Patricia should be a little bit concerning for, I think, Patriots fans <laughs> or fans of Mac Jones. And, and we'll see. Maybe Belichick's really going to have to get hands-on on the offense. And, and is that something he could even do to be you know, successful? I'm not sure. So it'll be interesting to kind of follow that closely, follow if there's any other late movement here with the quarterbacks, with Jimmy Garoppolo and, and that situation, kind of how it unfolds there. Let's spin this over to the running backs because I, I do feel like, Sig, post-draft, you you have been – near the top, I think, in supporting Kenneth Walker right on a level of with Brees Hall compared to what else is out there in the industry. Uh, is that based on just their natural talent? Is it based on you seeing more of a big picture where some people are hurting Kenneth Walker because of Seattle's current offensive situation where we notice things are very fluid and you're seeing more big picture there. Do you think he could evolve into more of a, at least a functional pass catcher and people are devaluing that too much, even though he wasn't asked to do that? Yeah. Why I like Walker over Hall and from a prospect profile standpoint, they're roughly in the same galaxy. I think with Walker, he's a little bit stronger in terms of his clear NFL application. And like you said, he's more like Nick Chubb. He wasn't used heavily as a pass catcher, but there's no evidence that he's not going to be at least a competent pass catcher in the NFL. Whereas with Hall, it's more of his ceiling, his athleticism. Um, he does have a more proven passing game skills. But when we then start to apply that to fantasy and an outlook for this year or a long-term outlook, uh, I, I'm still waiting for the Jets. And I'm still waiting for Zach Wilson. And I think in some ways, how willing you are to commit to Garrett Wilson, how willing you are to commit to uh, uh, Brees Hall is going to be based on whether you think they made a big mistake with Zach Wilson. And guys, just like we were, I was alluding to, it takes years, right? I mean, especially if it's Joe Douglas. So Cecil, my partner over at the Audible, he is being pretty upfront that there might not be agreement in the Jets organization that Zach Wilson's the guy, or maybe even before he was drafted. 
All right. How does that play out? Uh, Joe Douglas is from that Howie Roseman school, so he's not going to take the fall for that. Right. Robert Sala is going to take the fall for that, even though I doubt it was Robert Sala's call <laughs> that Zach Wilson was the pick, guys. So is this is this is not a fruitful environment. This is not a fertile soil for values and statistics to grow. And I think Michael Carter's a good player. Michael Carter is not someone that you just sweep aside in this offense. And they have so much invested in the wide receivers. So if everything works and this offense is at least adequate, is at least at expectations for the amount of talent they've built, even though they do have, there's, there's the Mackay Becton question, uh, the internal offensive line looks okay. Then how does that play out with all this wide production tree? I don't know. I love Elijah Moore as a player. From a fantasy standpoint, I don't know how to project him. Chris Corey Davis is still the number one receiver. There. They paid Braxton, Braxton Berrios like $11 million for two years, like seven guaranteed. He's going to be used in the offense. How does this all work out? And in the meantime, do the Jets have to go in a year or two all the way back to square one it, uh, as far as their quarterback and their head coach? I think it's very possible. Whereas with Kenneth Walker, you have alignment and maybe that's temporary. Who knows how much longer P Carroll and Schneider are going to be running this franchise, but there's alignment. What the pay, what the Seahawks want to do and what they do well aligns with what Kenneth Walker does. Rashad Penny is a, a bump, a speed bump, basically. I mean, yeah, I, I hope he stays healthy. Hey, I hope I'm wrong. I hope Rashad Penny proves all the doubters wrong and gets even a bigger contract next year. And we don't even know about Kenneth Walker because he stays healthy and Penny does well. Uh, but I, I think that the alignment between Walker and the the organization's focus on offense and my questions about the Jets give me that separation. Yeah, and I, I think questions about the Jets, I think, are well warranted. Um, I, I mean, I still have my questions about, you know, Seattle, because once you lose a franchise quarterback, I just you don't really see there's a few instances, Green Bay, Indianapolis, where you somehow get another one walking right through the door. But that's the anomaly, right? And Most that applies to Pittsburgh, too, by the way. Your idea oh, of like, yeah. hey, you can crash hard when you have a franchise. Court. It can get a lot worse than you think it can get when you lose that quarterback. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I do think like the point of having good stable organizations with good stable front offices goes a long way when you try to project what a team is going to look like three, four five years out. Right. Um, and I do, I consider Seattle at least within the last decade or so to be one of the more stable organizations, same with Pittsburgh, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to reach the heights that they had once, you know, lived at. Right. Um, you know, maybe to take this in another direction, you know, I know, I know Paul, I know Matt, we, we have some of our favorites, yeah. um, sitting on, uh, uh, you know, on, on our podcast here are the ones that we love and, and just, just how high we are on, you know, say James Cook, but you know, is it, it's Rashad White day with the Leonard Fournette news. Yeah. It's, um, you know, maybe it's an Isaiah Spiller thing with people's pre-draft darlings. You know, if you take it to that kind of the next tier of running backs, who's got you the most excited? Well, the one that I ranked at the top of that tier for dynasty rookie drafts is Zamir White. And the reason I like Zamir White is that Josh Jacobs, the team already turned on the fifth year contract uh, option for him. Kenyon Drake is a free agent next year. It's a new regime. They took Zamir White. Uh, Zamir White is a top end talent. There's no doubt about that. And I would not expect the team to make an even bigger investment in running back next year. I think that they like white. I think we may see white sooner or later, but as you start watching all these guys, um, it, it sets up, you know, a large range of outcomes here 
Because on one hand, you can easily tell yourself a story that, again, like Lenny Fournette gets paid, he's 260 down here in New Orleans in the seventh ward where, where he grew up. He, I mean, maybe having uh, too many po' boys, which I am definitely guilty of too, so I can't blame him for that. Rashad White has a lot of observers excited about him based on minicamp and OTAs. He stood out in a way that Keyshawn Vaughn didn't. And uh, he's got the good passing game chops. Uh, so White has been steadily moving up spiller is the potentially the solution to a problem where the Chargers have been throwing resources at this second running back role and rolling snake eyes uh kelly didn't work out justin jackson's a solid player but couldn't stay healthy larry roundtree's just a guy spiller is probably not just a guy and so on and so forth we could talk about brian robinson we could talk about Tyrion davis price uh we could even talk about tyler algier um but this also is a group that could go back to my original point on Zamir White and make me look silly for saying it, where these are all the kind of running backs that are role players, right? I mean, Michael Carter was good. Michael Carter was as good as the Jets could have hoped last year, and they were still happy to turn around and spend a first-round pick. So maybe these are all guys that the fact they fell as far as they did in the draft to the third and fourth round shows us what the NFL thinks about them. And while there is an Alvin Kamara out there to give us a path for, say, a James Cook to attain that greatness, uh, chances are this we will look at this class the way the NFL did as a bunch of players who could contribute, but not players that you really build a background, a backfield around. Yeah, I, I think the, the points that you just talked about there are it's going to be interesting because I think this was a very overall down running back class. Yeah. And I think some guys kind of picked up some steam and I think some people are excited about some guys because of immediate opportunity and immediate landing spot. Guys like Tyler Algier come to mind, Damian Pierce come to mind. But I also think those guys are guys that we got to be very careful in the fantasy community not to overvalue, even if they have a functional year, even if they have a solid year. You know, we saw Michael Carter had a solid year for the Jets. That didn't preclude them from going out, trading up. I know it was only a couple of picks, but trading up with the Giants to get Brees Hall. You know, so I think sometimes fantasy players and dynasty players, we fall into, we want immediate production from our running backs because we know their lifespan is short. But we do have to kind of play that dance a little bit of trying to balance. Do we think this is a guy that could be just a guy for right now for a very temporary? Or do we think this guy has a little bit of staying power? We know more times than not, the staying power guys are usually the guys with more draft capital attached to them. Teams are much more willing to invest more assets, whether it be free agent money or high draft capital. You know, if they don't have somebody else in the building, it's, you know, the writing's on the wall for Rashad Penny. He's there one more year. They brought him back. Maybe they didn't know they were going to have an opportunity at Kent Walker, you know, but we know it's going to be Kent Walker's job sooner rather than later. We know Brees Hall is going to separate himself from Michael Carter, and that's going to be somewhere in that 65-35 or 70-30 type split. You know, the James Cook situation, I think, is an interesting one, and we've talked about it a lot here is I feel like people are on kind of two fences where fence one is they think he could be JD McKissick, maybe a little bit more. And the other 
there's not much of a middle ground. I think the second ground is people think he could materialize and his game could evolve like early career Alvin Kamara, not guy who could like handle 20 touches in terms of rushing attempts and stuff like that, but a guy that's could roll, could develop, even had the weight he is if he's played more in space and be that, that guy who can get maybe 14 touches and even touch the ball more in the NFL than he did in college. What lane do you kind of see, or maybe you do fall somewhere in the middle of that, even though that doesn't seem to be the lane most people are choosing? I'm much closer to the optimism lane. That just could be my personality. Uh, not optimistic enough to say you should take him over one of the top five wide receivers, or maybe not even Jahan Dotson. I have to go back and really think about Jahan Dotson versus Cook now that Terry McLaurin is signed. But certainly worth that late first-round pick, and confidently worth that late first-round pick in rookie dynasty drafts, as opposed to Keyshawn Vaughn, who mentioned earlier, who it seemed laughable to spend that pick on him just because he, his talent, his wattage of talent didn't really indicate that he was going to be more than well, what he's worked, turned out to be maybe a little bit more. Here's why you have to like betting on cook guys. Okay. Imagine we had the same proposition with cook in just about any other organization, except maybe Kansas city, you know, maybe Tampa Bay. Uh, we would, if, if James cook had been drafted by, let's say, you know, the Texans, or the uh, probably would have been drafted by the Jets, but or the Panthers or, or whoever, uh, a, a team Atlanta, uh, a team that had plenty of opportunity in the backfield, which we love in rookie drafts, but they don't have the structure around a player f- to create success, right? We would probably not even be nearly th- even at the same draft capital. I think that his ADP would be lower, and that's a sign of the intelligence of the, the combined hive mind of the fantasy community because the fact that he landed in buffalo an organization with an offense that is peaking right now and an organization that makes the job easier for all their players to win in their individual matchups right i mean that's the great thing about whatever they ask james cook to do whether it be uh motion out of the backfield and and be one-on-one against a linebacker or um you know get run running the ball against light boxes right running the ball against six players in the box uh this is great how i'm going to put a chip on whoever that player is is right whoever they liked enough to spend that second round pick on because he's set up for success and i think that they have a plan for him you mentioned jd mckissick that's a player they missed out on if they get mckissick then this never happens you know butterfly wings and so on alternate nfl universes but it's why i like gabriel davis this year i mean this offense creates overachievers this offense creates success dawson knox so why would we go against that trend what there's nothing in james cook's profile to make us think he's going to be on the pessimistic side of his range of outcomes when the offense should make us very optimistic yeah yeah and i think i'm right there with you and we've been we've been comping you know alvin kamara here and his i mean we've been comping james cook here for like almost two years to the how tennessee used alvin kamara right Right, they you know i think the georgia situation was much different than the tennessee situation right georgia they had enough, you know, other great players that they didn't need to ask him to maybe do more. Where Tennessee, I think it was just maybe poor coaching, poor, you know, decision making, whatever the case may be, that you know, that that minimize his his talent at college and uh you know didn't maximize it to its fullest potential. But I do think that Buffalo situation, you know, I think it was PFF who said Devin Singletary ran the fourth most routes of any you know, yeah. running back. That's a lot of routes. Now he, he was one of the worst pass catchers out of the backfield, but the fact that he was running those routes, well, you know, 
Josh Allen's going to throw the ball who's open. And if, if James Cook is running really good routes and there's targets to be had, he's going to deliver there. I mean, they lost all the Cole Beasley targets, right? They lost, you know, you know, there's targets to be had, you know, in that offense, you know, while others like Gabriel Davis will obviously assume more of them. And we'll see about Jameson Crowder and, you know, Khalil Shakir. I know some people are excited about, you know, but I also think, you know, more targets could go towards the running backs with the investment in James Cook. It was clearly something they wanted as, you know, the, you know, the J.D. McKissick signing until he, he, you know, he went back on that deal and went back to uh, Washington proved. So I think it's going to be really interesting with James Cook to see how much usage. I think he could be a guy that frustrates people early this year. So if anybody in redraft leagues gets a little bit, you know, he might be a great buy after the first three or four weeks of the season. If it's like a, sh- a really short league, maybe he even gets dropped in the league. Like if people aren't seeing him get the touches that they want, but I think eventually his role will continue to evolve and grow uh, this upcoming season and in the future. So Let's transition over to wide receiver. Every time I've had a guest on over the last couple of weeks, I, I posed the question, who was your favorite wide receiver pre-draft? And has that situation changed post-draft? Because there's that question can be answered five, six different ways if you bring on mm-hmm. enough analysts to, to share their takes on, on this class. Where do you kind of sit at the top of the wide receivers right now? Is it the same guy? Are you just sticking with talent and going with who was your pre-draft guy or have you changed and uh modified it a little bit post-draft same before and after it's jameson williams and i this isn't one that i have to really think about too much uh i don't think landing spots shook things up too much jake london's going to get a chance to be number one traylon burke's going to get a chance to be number one but really these players all get a chance to do whatever the peak of their abilities whatever the team's plan is the plan ends up at least in decent organizations around how the player performs. Uh, and I think that Jamison Williams going number 12 tells us that he's the best prospect in this draft, right? Because where would he have gone if he hadn't torn his ACL? Clearly he would have gone ahead of Drake London. If he went number 12 and with a lot of people saying he could have went number one in this draft in the wide receiver class anyway, even with the ACL, but really what Jamison Williams makes me want to talk about guys is optimism about the lions. Can we do that? Are we allowed to be optimistic about the lions? Right? Because did you see the war room celebrate when Chris Olave's name was announced? They had a plan and they executed that plan, took advantage of a first time GM, maybe moving up to number 12 in the division. That's okay. Uh, I, hey, I mean, this, it's all fair in the NFL draft in the NFL. So you have now Williams, that field stretcher who just creates tactically so much more room for this offense to operate. They have a bright young mind in Ben Johnson, who once he basically took over for Anthony Lynn last year, this offense started to take off. And we've already seen that Jared Goff, if he has the surroundings, can harvest the value the surroundings and play calls and execution creates. I also have, by the way, a great offensive line. Guys, they might have a top five offensive line in the league. So I think that uh, that makes it easier. Oh, he landed on the Lions. No. Great. He landed on the Lions. No, I, I mean, I'm I'm all aboard optimistic uh, Lions chatter here. I mean, how many teams do you hear year after year saying, ah, but we were injured. We had so many injuries. That's the, that's the reason we all stunk, right? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, how many injuries did, uh, you know, they had Hawkinson out for a while. They had, uh, you know, they had Okuda drop, drop out. They had uh, Swift out for a while. Like, like, they had, they were a pretty injured team last year and yet, you know, they overachieved expectations. Um, I, I, 
you know, I don't know how you really quantify the, you know, the soft side of, of football, that sort of intangible side. But, you know, when you've got a team playing that hard, you know, they, they've collectively bought in, they're believing in something. And I like the way that they're building that, that team, right? Like building it from the inside out. You mentioned the O-line. I mean, we shouldn't, you know, talk about how like their, their defensive line has really started to come together as well. And so when you dominate the trenches, when you add, uh, you know, peripheral playmakers all around the field that does that complement each other really, really well, like uh, Jamison Williams and Amon Ross St. Brown complimenting Hawkinson and Swift. And, and I still like, you know, the tough runner in Jamal Williams there too. You know, you've got a quarterback in Goff that's going to distribute things and we'll see how far that takes them. You know, I, I think the ceiling obviously isn't, you know, a Super Bowl there, but, you know, do you, do they get to, you know, make a little bit of waves hard, hard to make the playoffs in that division probably with Minnesota, but, you know, do they, do they beat 500 for the first time? Right. Um, and then where do they take that? Right. So I'm, I'm all aboard the, the Jamison Williams, Detroit Lions excitement, you know, because I, I think the arrow's up and I think they're starting to get some things finally right there. Um, you know, if we were, you know, talking about, you know, one of my favorites is, is uh, Jahan Dotson. You know, mm-hmm. you were talking about James Cook, Jahan Dotson. Does he fit in with, you know, that, those other top tier wide receivers? I mean, I mean, he went right after, uh, you know, Jameson Williams went right. Like they, you know, there's him, Olave, you know, and then, and then Dotson went off the board before, you know, Traylon Burks even, um, you know, do you like, uh, you know, where it sounds like you're almost reticent to put them in that other group. Yeah. Well, look, it's again, and I hate to make this so organizational centric, but it's Washington. Who's even going to be the quarterback for Washington in the year two? Who's going to be the head coach? Who's going to be the owner? Uh, I don't know. So we know that Terry McLaurin's going to be on the team. Well, I mean, he could get traded. So uh, it just doesn't seem to me to be, uh, again, a place where uh, now Dotson with his own individual talent can just make this whole discussion moot and dictate, just like Terry McLaurin did. Uh, I'm here. I've arrived. I'm really good. I'm going to be a big part of your offense. But uh, we have to be, kind of be agnostic about that stuff, right? I mean, we don't, we aren't in the building. We don't know these players' makeup. We don't know how they're handling. And is, you know, I'm going to make a nod to Matt Waldman, my colleague, who I know has done a lot of great appearances on this show. Uh, and his column that he wrote like 10 years ago or more, uh, the title was The Great Emotional Divide. And there's so much of a psychological, emotional, spiritual element to success or failure in the NFL. And there's, there's hints you might get watching the players in games but just hints and you might learn some stuff reading, but we're peeking through keyholes. So I don't ever want to write a player off and say it's impossible, but I, I just look at the situation that he's in and it's not one that makes me think players are going to hit their ceiling in that or kind of organization, not right now. I know McLaurin was, he was just kind of a, a unicorn in the sense that I don't think it mattered where he landed. And now Dotson was a first round draft capital. And I suppose guys, and maybe I'm holding on too much of this, and this is a larger conversation, just that Dotson wasn't considered in the same tier of talent by just about anybody before the draft. Anybody I can recall. I mean, there was that clear group, Alave and Wilson and London and Burks on the wattage of his physical tools. And of course, Williams, who we talked about. 
And there weren't that many draft analysts that I was aware of that thought, no, there's actually six in that tier. It's Dotson in that tier. Washington did, but Washington is not necessarily – and that's the other thing about draft capital, and I'm not sure what to make out of this, guys. Another larger conversation, right? We assign draft capital as part of a player's value, and we should, especially when it's high draft capital, simply because it makes teams more willing to give them chances. But, I mean, maybe, like, for instance, Terry McLaurin, you know, if you're going to succeed, you only need one or two chances. If you're going to fail, it doesn't matter how many chances you get. Anyway, where would Dotson have gone if Washington hadn't taken him, right? We're always being draft capital on one team's decision-making process when it might not really be indicative of, of a player's evaluation in a more generalized or averaged out kind of way. So I'm still not totally sold based on everything I studied and saw before the draft and everything that other people that I respect saw before the draft that Dotson belongs in the conversation with those other receivers. Yeah. I mean, when we did our pre-draft shows, I know, you know, Dotson was kind of lumped up in there with, I mean, we had John Mechie at the time up there too. Um, but he was kind of like lumped in there, but at that, you know, just, we think he's good. He, right. he kind of deserves to be in this conversation, but we're not going to put him over the other guys. And I think that's a fair thing to assess. And, you know, if Washington doesn't take him, you know, obviously, you know, Tennessee found a great fit with Traylon Burks, right? That's going to do, that's going to fit what they want to do in their offense. Um, You know, I personally think if in that butterfly scenario of, you know, where would he go? I, I personally think we were really excited to see who Green Bay and who Kansas City would have taken uh, at the end of the first round with one of their, their picks in the 20s. And that was really where I thought I would pick Dotson to go. And I would have gotten so excited about that because I really love the talent. And then you're meshing him with someone with a quarterback who's going to, you know, really bring out the best in what he does. You know, that didn't happen. They chose Watson. They chose, you know, Sky Moore. And, you know, I think we're elevating those prospects a little bit beyond there. There's a lot that a lot of pieces that we liked in their prospect profiles, but you know, I think the landing spot is really what's drastically inflating their values. So, you know, do we take a swing on upside organizationally? I mean, maybe that's the theme of this show, Mm -hmm. you know, is that stable organizations that you want to invest in? Or do you, you know, I guess Pittsburgh is a pretty stable organization too with George Pickens. Do you want to pivot maybe based on, you know, the, the talent elsewhere? I think we have to take this into account, but at the same time, guys, the stuff that we do, whether it's draft scouting and projecting players or it's fantasy, which is a more applied version of that, there's all these different variables and we can always look back and see, well, these were the operative variables for this player, right? Terry McLaurin was so good. It didn't matter where he landed. Case Keenum was throwing him, right? I mean, Taylor Heineke doesn't matter. Washington was in shambles doesn't matter so for him it was just the nfl was collectively way uh, undervaluing him from the drop probably just because what he didn't have the frame they like or something like that i don't know but then there are other players where we look and we say that because he was in this organization because these were the things he was asked to do you know josh allen for instance would would we be if josh allen had been drafted by a different organization would we even be taught i don't know i don't know the, the, the bills were very patient with him and the Bills were willing to give him an offense that was circulating around his talents 
as opposed to an offense that tries to limit him and make sure he doesn't make mistakes. The Bills are willing to do that. So I don't know, guys. But I do think that when we think of a player, it's like I like to say in fantasy drafts, you're never drafting a quarter, or you're never drafting a wide receiver, you're drafting the quarterback to wide receiver combination. Or even with the running back, you're drafting the offensive line, you're drafting the play callers, right? Uh, and, and when you're taking, especially in this large perspective with a rookie draft and you're taking the player's career, you're drafting the organization too. Uh, you brought up the Steelers and the wide receivers. And I think that the Steelers are a special case of wide receivers just because they seem to have such impeccable ability to both pick players that are going to exceed expectations and develop those players. Uh, so I think we look at Pickens, and this can tie back into the player empowerment era stuff from earlier in the show, because I think the Steelers have already looked into the crystal ball. Okay, are we going to sign Deontay Johnson? No. <laughs> here, like, here, Deontay Johnson, how about 13 months? <laughs> You know, you don't even finish the sentence. They're not going to offer him anywhere near what the market's going to pay him right now. Chase Claypool. We know how many things went awry with Claypool last year after his very impressive rookie year. Are the Steelers going to sign Chase Claypool? No. Remember, these are not first-round picks, so they don't have fifth-year options. So I think the Steelers looked at that. They looked at Pickens, who's a different kind of cat, all right? But I think they, they the stability the organization keep bringing up is something they rely on. And then Calvin Austin the third. No, I think it's, you know, I, I, what I'm excited about, guys, is the NFL has continued to change so that these five, eight, 170 pound guys, Wandale Robinson for your Giants, Paul, uh, uh, even remember the names of Khalil Templeton uh, or Pimpleton and, and Devin Tompkins, right? Uh, remember these guys because I think the NFL has evolved. I like to say every team needs to have somebody that will force the opponent to honor a jet sweep motion. Right. And that's these guys. So I'm excited to see what they can do. And I think it's just clear sign the Steelers have looked down the road and know they need to restock a wide receiver now and not wait until they let these guys walk, which they clearly intend to do. Yeah. Sig, I want to uh, go back to you mentioned Wandell, and I think he has been a very polarizing player. And here at Saturday Sunday, I've talked enough about him. So I, I want to see why somebody else, if, you know, with your perspective, you know, is higher on him than what the market is out there. You know, in terms of that, I've struggled to know why people are so down on him considering last year, they were so high on Rondell Moore. They were so high on Elijah Moore. This is a guy who has been productive, was productive in years in college, started as a running back or part running back, part wide receiver. You know, Giants clearly wanted him. I think he was the guy they were targeting when they traded down twice yes. and they knew they can get yes. him. So like everything is aligning where people should be excited about him. But I just don't know if it's that hard cutoff of five foot eight, but that wasn't a thing last year that bothered right. people about Rondell Moore. I don't know if it's the length. What is it about, you know, why do you think people are so down on Wandell and why are you hired in the consent? Yeah. Psychoanalyzing the public, which I love to do, man, it, it that's quite a swamp to get into, by the way, just human behavior and why people think what they think. Uh, maybe it's a little bit of why I'm hesitant on Jahan Dotson. Just not a lot of people saw Robinson going that high. It's exactly why the Giants could have clarity that they could trade down twice, gather up some extra resources, and still get the guy they want, which leads into the why I'm optimistic because it was the guy they wanted. And maybe I'm advancing Shable. Shable. I just turned Brian Dable and Shane <laughs> into Shable. You can take that, Paul. You can even trademark it. It's the Shable, the Shable re regime uh, for the Giants. I'm maybe advancing them some trust, right? Before we can see whether they're really trustworthy. That uh, they zeroed on this guy. I think they've got a plan for him. I think they understand 
how they can have him intersect with the playbook, with a scheme, with an approach to moving the ball that they want to take. And that, in some ways, guys, he's kind of a signature player, right? Because they, the two picks they took in the first round, and Paul, let's, I did some Lions. Let's do some Giants optimism. Come on. Come on. Although the Giants I'm here for it. <laughs> yeah, well, the Giants have had some success more recently than the Lions. But uh, what you like about this is the number five and number seven picks. Guys, if they were the number one and number two picks, we wouldn't have batted an eye. We would have said, oh, yeah, Evan Neal, number one, Thibodeau, number two. Sure. That makes that's fine. And they got a five and seven. Um, I don't I mean, they're signature players in the sense that, you know, you can tell a little bit about what they value by who they didn't take. Although those were slam dunk picks. You know, the, the, those were picks that you couldn't mess up. Uh, Robinson is the first one that was kind of a declaration, right? This is what we're about. I like to say teams can't lie during the draft. And I, I think I'm liking Robinson. I mean, he's a good football player, first of all. But, but I'm liking him because it seems like the team that has him really had their heart set on him and already have a plan. I think we might see him be the primary slot receiver right away because Sterling Shepard's coming back from an Achilles. And then, look, Kadeir's Tony, we'll see. This is speaking of human behavior. Uh, we'll see. It seems like the team, the new regime, Shable, put a shot across the bow, maybe floated some stuff out there to see how he would respond. And he did respond. But it's Kadarius Tony. How long is that going to last, right? I mean, we'll see. Okay, Kenny Galladay, that's a that's a Gettleman, another Gettleman decision, right? I mean, how many Gettleman decisions? It's just like talking about the Texans. Like, how many traces of Bill O'Brien are even on the Texans roster now, right? The Laramie Tunsil trade, that's, I mean, how many traces of uh, Gettleman are going to be on this roster in two years? So I think if Wandale Robinson does well with the opportunity he's given, then you may see him as an incumbent player by year three in this offense. And uh, that that's a lot more exciting to me. You mentioned John Mechie, Jeff. You know, Mechie is a solid player. Mechie is a, a, a good uh, a utility for an offense to move the ball, especially an offense that's limited, doesn't have superstars like the Texans offense. Uh, but with, with Wandale Robinson, uh, I, I think you have a player that can be a lot more than that, even though they were drafted in roughly the same spot. And even though it surprised folks to see both of them go off the board in the mid-second. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And and you said it. Like I, I think people I still have a little bit of the stench of the Gettleman error. And again, the Daniel Jones situation is fluid. If if he doesn't take a big leap this year, he's gone, right? Just like we talked about, like, you know, same thing with Seattle, right? If Drew Locke doesn't all of a sudden become a much different player than who he was in Denver, probably not happening. He'll be gone too. So like I think people are still downplaying the Giants situation. Similarly, even last year, Kadarius Tony as a first round pick was falling too far in rookie drafts, you know, for what his talent warranted. And I think the same thing's happening with Wandell this year. Uh, and I think it's gonna be really interesting because I do think they have a big plan for him right out of the gate. Uh, Sig, thank you so much for hopping on with us today. It is always an absolute blast to talk to you pre-draft, to join you guys on draft night, and then to have you come on post-draft. Uh, I'm sure everybody here who listens to the pod is following you, but please, we're getting close to the training camp opening. Uh, let the audience know where to find you, uh, where to find you, what you're working on at Football Guys. If you have anything new you want to share that's going on over at Football Guys on the podcast, uh, please do so. You're on mute, Sig. Thank you. If you. Football guys, if you haven't 
if you haven't heard of football guys, just know that if you're listening to football podcasts in mid July, uh, and you enjoy the product of, of the good people Saturday to Sunday, then you're going to like football guys. And the first thing you can do is just sign up for our free newsletter where we're going to keep you updated on all the things that happened in the last 24 hours that you need to know and what it means for your fantasy teams. And hopefully we build some trust and go from there. The show, the audible, see, I've been doing it for 16 years now. And one of the things we love the most on our calendar is the preseason watch list where we do kind of like we did on the show today. We just lay out, what are we thinking about? What are the range of possibilities? What are the, possibilities that have been opened up by the changes in teams since the last time we saw them how are we feeling about these players we go through every player that could possibly matter on the team uh, that we can foresee and it's just a starting point once that fire hose gets turned on and that's what's exciting guys is we are going to have the fire hose turned on in the next couple of weeks we are going to have actionable information things that happen how players look coming back from big injuries and surgeries how the rookies look how the teams look with the new coaches and new schemes new quarterbacks and that gets the juices flowing for the roller coaster ride of the season and i think most of all football guys we just enjoy sharing that ride with as many people as we can uh and and that's why i've always loved coming on uh, the show with you paul and getting at the game in a way that is stimulating intellectually, but also preserves the emotional part of it and respects the human part of it always. Cause that's the driver of the whole thing is the human beings. And uh, it's, it's, it's exciting. And I think we all need the distraction and football, the best distraction they've come up with yet. Absolutely. I know right now in a uh, Scott Fishbowl chat for, for the Stanford League, you know, we've been kind of sharing our stories a little bit to get to know each other. And I said it when the best thing from doing Saturday to Sunday has been the relationships that have been created and formed and the people I've gotten a chance to meet and talk to. And, you know, I mentioned you and Matt and, you know, how generous you have been with your time and stuff over the years and helping us out here at Saturday, Sunday, inviting me onto your show on draft night. Uh, you know, so I'm right there with you. It's always a pleasure to do this with you. It's been a pleasure for all these years to get to know you uh, and be a guest on your show and have you come on uh, our show here multiple times. Jeff, any final parting shots before we call it a night? I mean, it's, it's fair to just keep raining on praise to football guys, but uh, you know, even just, the latest addition to the team, you know, a lot of the IDP side, you know, again, you know, Sig, you there, you know, Matt as pallbearers for, you know, almost just like a generation growing up playing fantasy football, you know, it's, it's really just been, um, you know, just it's when you talk about sources and trusted sources, you know, that's that's one of the go to places. So, you know, just thanks again for coming on, lending us your ear. Um, always great to talk about it, even down the you know, the, the rabbit holes that we travel, you know, again, really interesting to dissect, uh, you know, on a more meta level with, uh, you know, the way organizations play into this. So thanks again for joining us, Sig. And uh, yeah, as always, Paul. Yeah, absolutely. Again, everything Jeff just said, I could echo it again. Uh, but uh, it's always a pleasure, always fun. And, and we're amping up here, getting ready for the start of the next NFL season and the next college football season. So on behalf of Sigmund Bloom, on behalf of Jeff, Myself and our sound tech engineer, David Nakano. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward next time taking you from Saturday to Sunday. <laughs>